Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for a beautiful day. Thank you for uh, just life and breath. Thank you for friends. Thank you for church. Thank you for the cross. And uh, Lord, as we are heading toward Holy Week, I pray that you would do a work in each of our hearts. Uh, May we never take uh, your grace for granted. And um, Lord, as we open your word now, um, apart from your spirit, these are just words, um, but empowered with your spirit, uh, you do miracles. So we, we ask you to do a work of miraculous transformation in our hearts and in our attitudes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been in a series called Ode to Joy. There we go. And um, we've been talking about um, how important it is to have a joyful attitude, especially when we realize that we are witnesses for the Lord. We represent the Lord. And, you know, I don't know how many people come to the Lord through apologetic arguments, you know, the cosmological argument and the teleological argument and this argument and that argument. You know how most people come to the Lord? They meet another Christian and there's something different about them. Now, there's something different about a lot of Christians that (laughs) um, may not be a good thing, but one thing that should set us apart is that we are joyful because God should make that difference in our lives. Now, today, we want to look at the relationship between joy and gratitude. And uh, let, let me begin with just a number of quotes. Author by the name of Rob Hawkins says this, When someone continually talks about how happy they are, I tend to doubt them. But when they talk about how grateful they are, I know they have found happiness. And he doesn't doesn't necessarily buy everybody who says, I'm happy. But if they are a grateful person, then he knows that they are truly a happy person. Truly happy people are truly grateful people. And ungrateful people, call them the grumblers, right, are unhappy people. Randy Elkhorn, he's the guy whose uh, book I have been reading and many of you are reading, has a book on happiness. He says this, happiness and unhappiness are in direct proportion to gratitude and ingratitude. Dennis Prager, um, he's a talk show host, he's on the radio, he is Jewish. Um, But he has devoted his life to the study of happiness. Um, And he has written this. He says, we tend to think that it's being unhappy that leads people to complain. But it's truer to say that it is complaining that leads to people becoming unhappy. Become grateful and you will become a much happier person. Which comes first? Being unhappy and complaining, or complaining, and then you become unhappy. Elkhorn again says, Gratitude unleashes the freedom to live content in the moment 
rather than being anxious about the future or regretting the past. And one more, this is Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton says this, you say grace before meals, and by grace um, we mean uh, thanking God, right? So you, you thank God for your meals. All right, but I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. So uh, here's what I want to do. I want to attack the issue of gratitude from three different angles. First, I want to look at the horror of ingratitude, right, from God's perspective, the horror of being ungrateful. Then I want to look at the choice of gratitude, and then the practice of gratitude. Gratitude. All right, so, so let's begin by looking at the horror of ingratitude. Now, um, I teach the book of Romans, and the, the nice thing about teaching the same book over and over is um, you really get to learn that book. And Romans uh, begins with Paul saying, hey, it's Paul, hi to the Romans, and then he says, here's the, here's the theme of the book, the gospel. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So uh, the gospel is what saves your soul. And he begins now to lay out the gospel. And in verse 18, you could say, point number one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Point number one, you're under the wrath of God. In, in fact, I, I understand that, that um, the, the verbiage is this. For the wrath of God is, that's a present tense verb. It's being revealed. It's not that it's going to be revealed. God is pouring out his wrath right now, and what we find out is the way he does it is by handing sinners over to their sin. And there's a downward spiral of addiction to our sin. Okay? So the wrath in chapter 1 is him letting us go deeper and deeper into our sin. Okay? Now, I, I, I skipped verse 19 and 20, but in verse 19 and 20, he already addresses an objection. Somebody might say, yeah, but what about people who don't know there is a God? He says, there's no excuse. He says, the existence of God and some of its attributes are known through creation. Just look around to see the beauty, the order, just the existence of things. There is no excuse for not knowing that God exists. Now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 21. For although they knew God, okay, everybody knew that God's existence is real, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The essence of sin is ingratitude. It's the creature knowing that there's a glorious creator and not really caring. Not having a thankful attitude toward him. Indifference, boredom, grumbling, complaining. Anne Voskamp is an author. She says this, Ultimately in his essence, Satan is an ingrate. Okay, what's the essence of Satan's heart? He, ingratitude toward God. He didn't, he didn't like being a creature. And he sinks his venom into the heart of Eden. Okay, so he says, ah, Garden of Eden. Mankind. I'm going to bring them down. I'm going to suck them into my ingratitude. Satan's sin becomes the first sin of all humanity. The sin of ingratitude. Our fall was, has always been, and always will be that we aren't satisfied in God and what he gives. You know, the, uh, the story of Israel in the desert is the story of ingratitude, of grumbling against God. Remember, God delivers the Israelites from slavery, and he reveals his glory to the Egyptians and to the Israelites by doing uh, miraculous things, by sending plagues. There's no doubt that God is real, and Moses leads them out of, of captivity, and they're now in the desert. And they start grumbling. Grumbling about lack of water, and God provides water miraculously. Then they don't like the water, so he gives them different flavored water. Uh, they, they complain there's not enough food, so he gives them magic bread from heaven. I think it was kind of a Krispy Kreme thing that every morning, just you go out and you get your donuts. Um, then they grew tired of that. They, they, they complained. They, they said, we like the food back in Egypt better than this same old thing. And they grumbled again. And they, they, a lot of their grumbling had to do with the menu, right, with, with food. Well, this goes on and on and on. And finally, they're on the edge of going into the promised land. And God has promised. I'm going to give it to you. Now, you do have to fight, but I'm going to be with you. Just go in and take it. And the Israelites say, you know, before we do that, we should send some spies into the land. So they pick a guy from each tribe, and the spies go into the land, and they, they look at the people and the buildings and the, the crops, and they come back, and Moses says, all right, what's your report? And there's two of them, a guy named Josh and a guy named Caleb. And they go, ah, it's great. The grapes are so big, you have to carry the clumps back on two sticks. They're just, it's huge. And it's, God's just going to give it to us. Let's do it. And the other ten go, no, no, it's scary. There's giants in the land. 
There's like, they're all like huge and we'll die. No, we can't do it. And they start to grumble and the grumbling spreads like a virus through the people. And all of Israel grumbles. We can't do this. So here's God's response to their grumbling. He says to Moses, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Ultimately, by the way, isn't all our grumbling against God? No, it's against my boss. It's against the president. It's against this. Ultimately, it's all grumbling against God. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, okay, millennials on up, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Junipah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. That's why we named our kids Caleb and Joshua. Right? You get in by your name. Um, that whole generation died out. Grumbling and complaining kills joy. It's a horrible witness to the God we represent. And it brings the wrath of God. Now, we can kind of laugh off a grumpy person. Oh, that's just old grumpy Bill, you know. And every church has the grumpy. Oh, that's just, you know, he was raised by skunks. Don't, you know, he had a, had a bad childhood. Um, it's not really that funny, though, because grumbling is the sign of unbelief. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, the writer refers to the Israelites who fell in the desert, who didn't go into the promised land because of their grumbling. And this is what Hebrews 3.19 says. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The sign of unbelief is grumbling in an ungrateful heart. So, point number one, I think we need to open our eyes and see that this isn't just a personality issue. This is a sign of unbelief, and it is a a, a sin that brings wrath. So we should wake up and go, wow, I need to examine myself here. You you, you could say, well, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an embezzler. I could be a lot worse. Sure, I grumble all my life and I make life miserable for my family. But, you know, that's no big deal. Really? So, number one, first thing, the horror of ingratitude. Now, let's, let's get a little more positive here, and let's talk about the choice of gratitude. 
All right? The, the, the first attitude that flows out of a heart of unbelief is ingratitude. Now, when we are united to Christ, our old self is crucified with Christ. Okay? What, what that means is that when you believe the gospel... It's not just an intellectual thing you agree to, like an equation. But there's an actual murder that goes on in your heart. Here's what Romans 6, 6 says. For our, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, will, uh, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? Now, this does not mean we become instantly sinless. Okay? Um, Paul goes on to talk about his struggle in Romans 7, and that we have to participate in still killing the, the old man, it's kind of like a zombie. You kill it, and it keeps coming back, right? But there's a fundamental transformation that goes on the moment you're united to Christ, and we now have the desire to be holy and the ability to fight, Okay. In other words, I don't want to make it sound like believe in Jesus and you'll be happy all the day. Maybe a better way to put it is this. Believe in Jesus, you're united to him, and now you have the power to fight that old grumbly man. Right? We have the ability to choose and to fight. Let me give you an example. Um, and I, I, if, I over, if I overstress this, it's, it's dangerous. But I think we live in a society today that says we are slaves to our impulses. Okay? To, to the point of um, whatever gender you feel like today, you're a slave to your impulses. Okay? Let me just show you something interesting from the book of Nehemiah. The Israelites had come back to Jerusalem. They would built a wall around the city. They were rebuilding the temple. And uh, Nehemiah and Ezra gathered all the people, and they read and explained the law of Moses to the people. They had church, basically. And the people who had been in exile, they hadn't heard the law. And here's the response, uh, the emotional response that they have to hearing the law. Um, they weep. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God and do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, 
and drink sweet wine. So eat the, uh, I was going to say pork chop. They wouldn't have eaten a pork chop. <laughs> or bacon. <laughs> I don't know. What's the fatty part of a cow? The ribs? We'll go with that, right? Moving along, right? Okay. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved. Stop crying. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people said, well, how can you expect us not to be sad? We have no control over our emotions. No. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay? Now, I don't want to overstress this, and I don't want to give you the impression that you never is there a time for weeping. There's a time for everything. But here's an example of people who are weeping and they're told, no, 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 today's a day of celebration. No crying, rejoicing. Go get some food. Celebrate. And they did. They had the ability to choose gratitude. All right? Now, this doesn't come automatically. You know, sometimes it does, but I think, as with all Christian disciplines, there's a discipline to becoming more grateful. So let's take a look at the practice of gratitude. I actually think it is possible to change a grumpy, complaining attitude to an attitude of gratitude. You say, well, how do you know this? Well, you know how in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says he experimented with life to find out what the purpose of life was. He tried this, and he tried that, and he tried different things. I've been experimenting over the last several weeks with gratitude, right? The practice of purposely shifting from a negative or a neutral attitude to an attitude of gratitude. And let me just share some of my findings, okay? Or, or what, what I've been doing, okay? Um, number one... First of all, I've just simply been becoming aware of the negative influences in my life. Okay? Have you ever noticed that after you talk with certain people, they can pull you in to a negative mood, a complaining mood? negative mood, and I've just been kind of saying, wow, I just talked to so-and-so, and I want to complain. Have you noticed 
how influential others are upon your lack of gratitude. Right? So I made a list of those people and I took it off the directory and no, I'm just... Um, nobody, nobody here, but my, my, my wife will say, hey, did you talk to so-and-so today? And I'm like, how did you know? Did you look at my phone? No, no, I can just tell. <laughs> I can just tell you talked to so-and-so. Oh, it's contagious, all right? But it's not just people. Um, Christians pay attention to the news. And... The way the news is packaged today, it's very conflictual. Now, I'm not saying don't pay attention to the news, but I am asking us to be aware, are there certain news sources, be it blogs, be it TV, be it radio, that just program us into negativity and criticalness? Okay, I'm becoming aware of that. And then, of course, the marketing of products. Marketing is all about making you dissatisfied with your current car, your current house, your current lawn, your current family, your current spouse. Right? Um, just, first of all, I'm just becoming aware of the influences that war against my gratitude. Okay? Second thing. This is going to sound so trite. I'm choosing to count my blessings. Right? You, you know, if you're driving in the car, you can let your mind wander. And you can be sucked into negativity, or you can do the discipline, the, uh, uh, the practice of thanking God. And you can just come up with a, a list of four things. Is there anything physical you can thank God for? If, if you're not hooked up to life support, then thank him for life. Thank him for health. Thank him that you uh, don't have COVID or you've recovered from COVID. Is, are there, is there anything physically that you can just thank God for? Right? How about financially? Is there anything you can thank him for? Any of you get a couple thousand dollars in the bank this week? Yeah, but they just print that money and it's going to create hyperinflation, and it's going to kill our future generation. Yeah, but you got a sandwich out of it, so eat the sandwich and enjoy the sandwich, okay? Um, relational. Are there just any relationships that you haven't destroyed with negativity that you enjoy? Can you thank God for somebody? Right? And then spiritually. Is there anything you can thank God for spiritually, like not going to hell? Right? So, um, secondly, I'm just, I'm just trying to practice the counting of, of blessings. Third, comparing. Um, we have a tendency 
to want to compare ourselves to those who have more, right? And I don't mean compare in the sense of, of feeling better or superior, but what about comparing yourself to how bad things could be? Rather than, than comparing and saying, boy, I got the raw end here, you know, what did I hear? Most people live on less than $10 a day elsewhere in the world. That's a drive through Starbucks today. Right? In fact, 1 Timothy um, 6, 8. Here's the, here's the bottom line. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul who spent most of his time in prison or a lot of time in prison, says, you know what? I've learned the secret to being content. I've got clothes and maybe one meal a day. And that's the baseline for which we should learn to be content. You know, uh, in studying for, for Good Friday, I realized that as they gambled for Jesus' clothes as he's hanging on the cross at the foot of the cross, they're gambling for his clothes. Those were the only clothes he owned. You know, I don't think he carried a duffel bag around with a, a change of wardrobe for each time he preached. He didn't have a lot, and he was very content. Okay, Number four. Enjoy every sandwich. And by the way, somebody mentioned this week, this last week, Pastor Brian, you mentioned the sandwich a lot. What's the deal with the sandwich? Okay. Um, <laughs> there's um, a guy who died named Warren Zevon, and he's, he does Werewolves of London. Greg, are you with me on that one? Okay. Um, so when he found out that he had this terminal cancer, David Letterman had him on for a whole show, and um, he played some of his songs, and then David Letterman has him come over to the, the couch, and he says, so you're, you're going to die. What has, has, knowing that you're going to die, what has it taught you about life? And he said, well, just how much you're supposed to enjoy every sandwich. Guess what? You're going to die. Are you enjoying every sandwich? Are you enjoying the weather today? Are you enjoying the little things in life? You know, uh, we looked at Ecclesiastes a couple weeks ago, and Solomon says this, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And I don't think Solomon uh, is, is being, um, uh, oh, well, there's nothing, I can't figure out life, there's nothing better, so just eat and drink. And I think he's saying, no, there really is nothing better than being able to sit down with friends and family and enjoy a meal. What could be better than that? Do you do it? Are you enjoying the little things? OK? 
Okay? By the way, every time Jesus eats, even, even at the Last Supper, before he passes out the bread, he gives thanks for the bread. You know, um, a lot of times in the, in the communion service, they will have a separate prayer for the bread because Jesus prayed for the bread and then have a separate prayer for the, the cup and it's part of the sacredness of uh, Jesus prayed to set it up. You know what? I think Jesus just gave thanks for everything he ate. I don't know that it's a separate prayer to sanctify. And I, I think he just thanked God every time. He, when he multiplied the fish and loaves before he ate, he gave thanks. Okay? So, um, enjoy every sandwich. Number five. I'm learning to talk to myself instead of listen to myself. Say, what's that all about? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who has written a book called Spiritual Depression, he talks about Psalm 42.11. Psalm 42.11, the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. All right, so here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about that. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou downcast, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment, and I will speak to you. Why art thou downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Depression zaps your desire and your ability to fight, right? But that's the very thing you have to do. Listen up, self. I'm not going to listen to you. You listen to truth. I remember when I was in seminary, um, how we could live in those conditions, I don't know. But there were these little bitty cubicles. I call them torture cells that we lived in. And um, the, the walls were paper thin. And there was a guy who lived next door to me. Big guy who played football. Um, but I could hear him talking to himself. 
And he, he would say, oh, you stupid idiot. Why did you do that? It's like, kind of like the Chris Farley. Oh, stupid. And I thought to myself, this poor guy is going to end up disabled in depression. And, and it happened. Okay. And while a lot of people don't talk out loud, there's this inner talk. It's all negative. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's, I don't know where you got, got those voices but do you talk back? Do you fight back? Depression is giving in and believing it. And spiritual warfare is talking back and refusing to believe it. Okay, let me close on this. Um, just a, a, a word on hypocrisy. Some people might be hearing this and saying, oh, so what you're saying is fake it. No, 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 no. Okay, faking it is being miserable and grumbly, but putting on a fake smile so everybody thinks you're a super Christian. That's hypocrisy, okay? What this is calling for is not faking it. In fact, there's this guy, Piper, who wrote a book called When I Don't Desire God, and he talks about this hypocrisy thing. He says, there is such a thing as hypocritical thanksgiving. Its aim is to conceal ingratitude and get the praise of men. So, so if you stand up and you sing and your motive is, I don't really want to sing, but I better do it so I look good, okay, that's hypocrisy. He says, that's not your aim. Your aim in losing your, loosing your tongue with words of gratitude is that God would be merciful and fill your words with the emotion of true gratitude. You're not seeking the praise of men. You are seeking the mercy of God. You are not hiding the hardness of ingratitude, but hoping for the inbreaking of the spirit. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a movement of faith. It's saying, I am going, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to praise God in song or in sharing or just in driving my car. I'm going to praise him, trusting that he's going to fill my words with a change of spirit. Okay? So here's, here's how I want to end. Um, let me give you a few moments to practice gratitude. Now, in the past, we've done some sharing, and I've said things like this. Um, who would like to share what you're thankful for? And a lot of people will go, okay, let me feel, let me feel, what, what do I feel thankful for? No, what, I'm, what I'm asking us to do is not feel first. I want us to think, what should I be thankful for? And I'm going to tell God whether I feel it or not. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to just ask, what should I be thankful for physically, emotionally, relationally, 
spiritually. And tell God thank you. 